Hey, uh, we're here together, kind of. We have a few people in the room. This is an interesting experience, but I am very thankful for technology. When I think about just our current circumstances, it really is an amazing opportunity for us to trust God personally. This is an amazing opportunity for us to care for others. I heard somebody on the news say something that I think is really important. They said, this is a time for social distancing, not for social disconnection. And I think this is an awesome opportunity for us to take, make use of the technology that we have to connect, to care for people. And I think for the most part, our most significant concern should be that we view all of this through the perspective of eternity. One of the things I was thinking about is um, just Jesus, when he looked at crowds, he looked about at the circumstances that were going on in people's lives. He saw that from a spiritual perspective. Matthew 9, 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that God would raise up workers to reach the community. I think about the things that I'm seeing with hoarding and toilet paper disappearing and food disappearing from shelves. I mean, it is just amazing um, the, the challenge and difficulty that people are facing as they kind of have this, the illusion of self-control, the, the illusion of control disappear from their lives. And, and you just see that. But as believers, that's not how we approach things. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew cha- Luke chapter 13, uh, he talked about some, um, some crises that happened. Uh, one was Pilate going and just executing a bunch of people. Another was a building that fell and crushed some people. And one of the things that Jesus says is, when you see that, do you think that happened to them because they were greater sinners than anybody else? No. He says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. When we consider the things that are going on, we need to view these from an eternal perspective. It needs to remind us that our relationship with the Lord is the most significant thing. It is ultimately what matters. And so that's what we're going to be considering this morning. Now, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard people say that this is an unprecedented situation, that we have never faced anything like this. And what I think is interesting is that this is unprecedented unprecedented for me. It's unprecedented in our lifetime, but this event is not unprecedented in history. Uh, People have faced the same kinds of things from the beginning of time. And just a few things from the recent history. You know, the Spanish flu in 1918, this is a flu that happened during World War I. And I don't know if you know this, but it infected 40% of the global population. Over a year and a half, as many as 50 million people died in the United States. It was 675 million. Almost twice as many people died from the Spanish flu as died in all of World War I. So that was massive. That that impacted our culture in the 14th century. the, The Black Death or the bubonic plague, 200 million people in just a few years died. In fact, in Europe, about half the population um, died from that. Could you imagine if 50% of the people in your town died? So when we think about our current circumstances, I'm thankful for 
the, the diligence that we're being encouraged to face this with, to really consider the well-being of our population and make drastic steps. But I'll just say this, this is not the worst thing that the world has faced in the sense of disease. We live in an amazing time where doctors have, you know, they're already coming out with things that are helpful. Uh, we, we, are, we can keep track of what's happening everywhere. And I was just thinking about, you know, um, one of our elders yesterday in our elder meeting um, uh, shared this quote from Martin Luther. Uh, read this. It says this. Uh, so this is Martin Luther talking about how he was going to approach that disease that killed nearly 50% of Europe's population. So this was a very serious thing, and people were just at a loss. They didn't know what to do. And this is what he says. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. And then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and also cause their death as a result of my negligence. So you just see in that, he's looking at this situation. He's saying, I'm going to be careful. I'm going to try to protect others by my behavior. And I think that that is a, a wonderful call for us as believers to, to, to hear. And he goes on and he says, if God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have, and I have done what he has expected of me. And I'm not so responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but I will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. You know, as we consider our times, uh, these are critical, but they're times of great spiritual opportunity. People are on edge. They're struggling with their change in circumstances. They're worried about their future, both financially and physically. They're considering their mortality and the mortality of those whom they love. And this is a time for us to be diligent and to reach out, and, and also to consider ourselves. You know, there are three important truths that we're going to consider this morning. And we need to understand these and personally apply them. And we need to proclaim these things to other people. Let me tell you what the three things are. The first is that salvation is urgent. It is exclusive, and it's personal. That's the first thing. Salvation is urgent, exclusive, and personal. The second is that salvation is not found in religion. Salvation is found in Christ. And the third is that salvation is a solid foundation that lasts forever. So we're going to be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 29. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, open those up and let's look into God's word this morning. So this is our first, our first point this morning is that salvation is urgent, exclusive, and personal. Let's read this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And, there are, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is, way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
So one of the things for us to consider in life is that there are actually only two roads. There is the narrow road that leads to life, and few people find that. There is the wide road that leads to destruction, and many are on that. I remember one year I was sitting in an, in an Awana meeting, and I sat next to one of the Awana leaders, and, and this lady leans over to me and she just says, you know, I think that life is like a bicycle wheel. And there's a bunch of spokes, and they all lead to the same place in the center. They all lead to the hub. She says, that's what I believe about salvation. Now, I know that this church doesn't teach that, so I don't tell the kids. But I think that you could, there's any road that leads to heaven. You know, that is so wrong. And, and I would just venture to say this. If you believe that, you cannot actually teach something different. And so just in considering this, there are many roads but they all lead to destruction. You can, you can get to destruction by being an atheist. You can get to destruction by choosing any other religion or any other way other than Christ. There are many ways to reach destruction, but there's only one way that leads to life. And you know, it is urgent. It is so important that we figure that out. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26 says this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, as we consider this, um, we can't have a mission to reach the lost if we're not found. You know, in the previous passage, um, Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. And he says to look at yourself before you look at others. You know, we do have a desire to reach the world, but the first thing for us to consider is, do I genuinely have a relationship with Christ? This passage is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. I think it's one of the scariest passages. It's one of those passages that really gets my attention. And so this is something that we personally need to consider. So this is, this is an imperative. It is of huge importance and, and urgency. It says, enter the narrow gate. Now, um, when you think about salvation, salvation's easy. We just come to Christ. Uh, we, we look at who Jesus is. We recognize that we need Jesus' help, and we ask. Luke 18, 17 says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Salvation, entering the, the, the kingdom of God, is not this complicated, difficult thing to do. Even a child can do it. And when we call out to Jesus, when we ask to be saved, he promises to save us. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That, that is a promise from God. So salvation is urgent. It's important. The second thing is it's ex exclusive. There is only one way. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look at this Matthew 7, 13 again. Enter by the narrow gate. You know, some people would say that Christians are narrow-minded. Well, in some ways, that's true. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, 
And the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know, the, the, the road to Christ is the road of repentance, and it's hard in the sense that we come to Jesus, and it requires complete sacrifice. We see that we're sinners, that we're lost, that we have no hope in ourselves, and we look to Christ. And Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27, a man comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And he says, well, I've done those things. And then Jesus looks into his heart and he says, okay, what is the one thing that this person is unwilling to give up, that they're unwilling to sacrifice, that they hold of greater value than their relationship with me? And he looks into this man's life and he just says, okay, if you've done those things, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have eternal life. And it says that this man walked away sad because he was rich. He owned a lot. Jesus picks the one thing. He says, what is the one thing you're not willing to sacrifice? Okay, that's what you have to sacrifice. Coming to Christ is to forsake everything and follow Jesus. The, the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, the other thing that we see in this passage is that it's personal. This is a narrow gate. We don't, we don't go through with our family. We don't go through with a group. No person is saved because they join the right um, organization. People are saved because of their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Salvation is something that happens between us and God. And nobody can stand between you and God and say, I will grant you salvation. That is something that happens only through Christ. It is not something we can do for another person. Nobody else can do it for you. And you don't get into heaven with your friends because you associate yourself with the right people. Salvation is a personal relationship between you and Christ. You know, this is the second thing, and this is important, and that is that salvation is not found in religion. It is found in Christ. When you look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, so Jesus here has been talking about what the life of Christ looks like, what it means to be a believer, how that displays itself in your life. And I think when he's speaking here, he's actually, this is a great summary of Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He wraps it all up by putting it into context. And I think that his words in this passage are explained by all the things he's just taught. So this is what he says about the religious leaders. I think he had the Pharisees in mind, not only the Pharisees, but I think specifically those were the false teachers in his day. This is what it says in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit 
but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You know, this is talking about false prophets, um, and this is just something for us to consider. False prophets, false teachers, they don't show up and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. I'm going to lead you to hell. In fact, I heard this, um, this, this uh, riddle, and, and I'll, sh I'll tell you the riddle. It's this. Uh, there, you, go, you go to an area, and there's two roads. And at the head of each road, there's a sign that says, this is the way to heaven. On one side is a person who always tells the truth, and they're directing to the way of life. On the other side is a person who always lies, and they're guiding to the way of death. What is a question that you could ask to find the right path? So that's a fun riddle. Maybe we'll come back to that at the end, and I'll tell you the answer. But the bottom line is that False teachers don't claim to be false teachers. They claim to point people to God. The Pharisees were exactly that. And here's the other thing. False teachers are deceiving people, but in many cases, a false teacher is sincere. They're genuine because they themselves are, are deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That was Paul's challenge to Timothy. So these false teachers... Um, you know, actually, you can tell a false teacher, but only if you know what to look for. They're, they're wearing sheep's clothing. They're pretending, just like the Pharisees did. If you know what to look for, you can identify a false teacher. And, and what Jesus tells us here is that you will know them by their fruits, not just their words, but what is the fruit of their life? Um, the Bible tells us that for the, for the Pharisees, um, Jesus tells us about those religious leaders. He has some really harsh things. Basically, what Jesus says is, if you follow the Pharisees, you will end up in destruction. Here's what he says in Matthew 5.20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23.4 talks about the fact that, that they didn't live what they preached. It says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Matthew 23, 15 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. When you think about the Pharisees and just all the things we've learned going through the Sermon on the Mount, they disregarded what God said. They twisted the Old Testament. They, 
they would focus on one verse and exclude other passages. They would make their own rules, come up with their own religious teachings apart from God's word. Even when they tried to obey, they only used that as a way to disobey what God had said. And so these Pharisees, they twisted scripture. They said things that God didn't say. They wanted to be the teachers. And one of the things that Jesus says is that the Pharisees were all about self. They loved respectful greetings. They were greedy. They loved places of honor. They lived life with a consideration of themselves, not a desire to please God, not a desire to care for other people, but with a desire to please themselves. Even when they did righteous things, it was for the approval of other people. They only did good things when other people noticed. And Jesus says that is not true for believers. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not figuring out how to earn, earn your salvation. It's living out your salvation. Here's the, the next thing that I think is really, I think, shuddering. is in verse 21. It says this. Not only are religious leaders deceived, but there are religious followers who are deceived. It says here in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a challenging, terrifying passage because here are people who leave this life, stand before God, and they say, Jesus, didn't we do things? Didn't we do all this religious activity in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Those are scary words. And we see in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul challenges us to consider ourselves. This is what he says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We do need to be looking into our life and, and evaluating, am I religious? What drives me? What motivates me? One of the things that is shocking is that this is not a false religion. These are people who say, Lord, Lord, they are claiming Jesus. One of the things that's important to remember is it's not just false religions that are, that are headed toward destruction. There are people who show up every week and sit in church, in Christian churches, good faithful churches who don't genuinely know the Lord. I guess one of the things I think about a lot as a parent uh, my kids are growing up in a Christian home. I, I don't want them to just think because I've taught them things or I've told them things that that means they're going to heaven. I don't want them to feel like that our family is Christian, so they're going to be okay. I want to challenge my kids to make a personal decision to follow Christ, to be able to think about themselves and to evaluate their life and say, do I see the fruit of genuine salvation in my life. It is not just the fruit of our, our teachers that we need to evaluate, it's our own fruit. W what do our actions, what do our words tell us about what is in our heart? 
So we are to test ourselves. And it goes on in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? When we evaluate ourselves in our heart, we're going to be encouraged that Jesus is in us. Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. You know, one of the things that my dad told me as a kid growing up is he just said, Roger, you can lie to other people, but don't lie to yourself. Always acknowledge what's real in your own life. And, and growing up in church, I had prayed so many times to receive Christ. But when I looked at my life, there was no expression of love for God. When I did things that were wrong, it didn't bother me. It only bothered me if I got caught. And when I did get caught, it was only the suffering or punishment that came into my life. I was not heartbroken over my sin. I didn't, I didn't have a desire to please God in the way I lived. I had a desire to please myself. And just in thinking that through, I remember coming to the realization as a junior high student who had prayed so many times to receive Christ. And I just said, if, when I look at myself and my own heart, I don't know the Lord. I know God is real, but I'm actually not willing to pursue him instead of pursuing myself. This, this is an important question for us each to ask ourselves. And here's what I want you to know. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know, we actually can be sure that we have eternal life. This is not something that we have to wonder about, that we're never sure of. You can know that you have eternal life. And that's actually the reason that the book of 1 John was written. The Gospel of John was written so that people would become believers. The 1 John was written so that people would know and be confirmed that they have eternal life. So here's a few things that um, I consider from the book of 1 John. Uh, before we get there, let me go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Here's the issue when it comes to salvation. When you become a Christian, God changes you spiritually. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. God wakes up your heart. He takes out a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. A heart that's in rebellion against God, he replaces with a heart that is in submission to God. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if any is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so here's how you decide. You think to yourself, when I've come to Christ, do I actually understand and believe the truth about Jesus? So what is that truth? That Jesus is God that he took on humanity, that he died for your sins on the cro cross, that he rose from the dead, and that you are saved based on his righteousness, not your own righteousness. That Jesus is the Lord of the earth. He's the Lord of all creation, and that coming to him, we recognize him and we worship him as king. The Bible tells us that if we love Jesus, we will obey him. It is coming to Jesus in repentance, turning away from sin, to Jesus. And that is something that we can only do with God's help, with God changing our heart, opening our eyes. And when we come to Christ, that changes everything about what we value, what we pursue, what is important to us. It is a heart change 
that works its way out. Salvation is never trying to be good enough, trying to do good things, trying to earn God's favor or approval. It is a heart change that works its way out in life. And so one of the things you ask yourself is, have I had a heart change? Have my desires changed? And how do those work their way out in my life? And I think when we can consider that well for ourselves, it helps us shepherd and care for the people that we're ministering to. If I can look at my life and say, okay, what demonstrates that I love Jesus? What are the things I do because I love Jesus? And what are the religious things I do to please other people or because of what I get? And then we can look around at our kids and we can evaluate some of those things and say, do they seem to be motivated by a desire to please God or are they motivated by selfish desires? As my kids were growing up and, and I was kind of caring for them and shepherding them and trying to teach them what God said and how to live, there were times that I would see things happen in my kid's life and just think, you know, here you've sinned greatly and you don't seem to care. And I remember having a conversation with one of my kids one time and just saying, okay, so this is what the Bible says about what a Christian is. And when I think about you, you've sinned in a great way and you're not grieved, you're not brokenhearted, like you're upset that I'm punishing you, you wish that consequence would go away. But if there was no consequence, if nobody caught you, if you did not get in trouble, would you be happy continuing down this path? And then I would say to, just say to them, and according to what scripture says, what does that mean about your standing before God? I would ask my kids, are you a Christian? And according to what God's word said, a, a Christian's life and a Christian's heart is like, what does this mean about where you are? I never went to my kids and said, you're not a Christian. I never went to my kids and said, you are a Christian. I always pointed them to scripture and to say, what does God say about where you are? Evaluate yourself, test yourself. Are you encouraged or are you not encouraged? So here's a list of a few things that we find in um, 1 John. The first one is actually Romans chapter 8, verse 16. You know, Romans 8, 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the things that was an encouragement to me, sometimes I'm looking at my kids and, and what I'm seeing doesn't seem like salvation and I'm pointing them back to, to Christ, I'm pointing them back to scripture. And, and sometimes my kids would say, no, I'm struggling, but I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian because I have trusted Christ. I believe who he is. And I never said, oh, that's not true. Look at these things in your life. Never did that. It was actually an encouragement to me that my kids felt this conviction that they knew the Lord. And so that's one of the things that we need to consider is do we have that confidence that we know the Lord? A second one is do we love fellow believers? You know, First John says anybody who hates their brother um, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you have a genuine love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you care about their well-being? You know, 1 John 1, 8 goes on and just says, are you aware of and confessing sin? You know, a struggle with sin doesn't mean you're not a believer, but you're aware of sin. The Holy Spirit lives in you, convicts you of sin, and you hate that sin. In fact, if you'll read Romans chapter 7, verse 14 to 25, that is how a Christian feels about sin. They hate it. They see it in their life and they say, ah, I wish it wasn't here. I agree with God. I want to do the right thing, but I'm fighting this battle. 
It's not the presence of sin. It's not the presence of struggle that means that you're not a child of God. It is a lack of conviction, a lack of grieving over sin that is an indication that you may not be a child of God. Another one, there, and there are many passages, but 1 John 2, 4, as well as Luke 6, 46, and, 1 John, and John 4, 14, 15, we obey Christ from the heart. I've heard many people say, oh, this person, they're living a wicked life of sin. They're, they're completely embracing it. They love it. They're pursuing it. But, oh, they love the Lord. Oh, they're struggling with all these things, and, and they're pursuing that, but they love the Lord. When a person loves God, it works out in a life as obedience. It's one of the things I think about for myself. When I became a Christian, I had a lot of sins that I just could not get control of. But I hated those things. I, I made adjustments. I prayed for help. And I was diligently working on those things. And actually, initially, I saw no change. I felt like I was losing the battle. But a year later, I looked at my life, and it was completely different. Not because I changed myself, but because a love for God changed habits. And I eventually, those things worked their way out in my life. A genuine heart for the Lord always shows up in behavior. And it's not initially, we don't necessarily all see that, but God sees it. But for you, is your life gradually changing? Are you growing in spiritual faithfulness? That is a mark of a genuine believer. Let's consider the next section here, point three. Salvation is a solid foundation that lasts for all eternity. Look what it says here in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You know, when we consider this passage, this is critical. Our eternity is at stake. Our foundation our, for, for this life is at stake. And what it comes down to is, are we going to listen to Jesus or are we going to listen to somebody else? Are we going to just make things up for ourselves? You know, I hear many people say, that's your truth, but this is my truth. What's true, that may be true for you, but this is what's true for me. I've heard, also heard people say things like, everybody reads the Bible and has their own interpretation. People take the Bible in different ways. Well, this is the thing that I think we need to come to grips with is that truth is Jesus's. It's not ours. God delivers truth. We accept his truth. Anybody who has their own truth doesn't have Jesus's truth. There is one truth and God communicates that. And so when a person says, I have my own truth, well, you may, and you're on the wide road that leads to destruction. God's word, Jesus wrote it. Jesus said it. And it is true. And our intention as we study Scripture and as we read it is not to twist it to make it say what we want it to say, 
but to figure out what Jesus has said. And so the Bible doesn't have many meanings. It may have many applications, but our job is to figure out what did Jesus mean when he inspired this. And so we need to take, if anyone he hears these words of mine, this is, these are Jesus' words, and we need to accept those. Um, Jesus is the one who knows. Many people just make up what they wish was true, but Jesus knows what's true. Look what it says in verse 28. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know, Jesus is the one that we need to follow. As we consider this, we need to just remember that life is a vapor and eternity is at stake. Uh, this is a, a wonderful opportunity as, as all these things are, are coming to light for us to consider, do I genuinely know the Lord? Do I see the Holy Spirit working out in my life? Do I see a love for God working its way out in my behavior? Or does everything about my behavior and words say, I don't know and love Jesus? We, we need to have a good understanding of what salvation is for ourselves so that we can pursue people with passion, so that we can guide and encourage people to come into a relationship with Christ. And this is the thing that I want to emphasize that is all over Scripture. We don't work to be good enough for heaven. We are not trying to earn our salvation. We are not maintaining our salvation. Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are saved by the work of Christ, which changes our heart. Romans 10, 11 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can know when we call out to Jesus, it's, Jesus never says, oh yeah, you really want to be saved. You're praying for salvation. You desire to have a relationship with me, but no, you're out. Anybody who calls on Jesus will be saved. And I, I've talked to some people who say, man, I just feel like a bad person. I look at my life. There's all these things wrong. And what I would say to you is if you're struggling with sin, if, if you see these things that are challenging in your life and you hate those and, and you just realize, man, this makes me so unworthy, here's an interesting thing to think about. Jesus said in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. When you realize that you're empty and you have nothing to offer, that is the perfect place to be. In Luke 18, 13, Jesus is comparing a righteous Pharisee praying and saying, look, I'm good. Look at all these great things I do. And God, I thank you. I'm not like that bad person over there. And then it says in verse 13 of Luke 18, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what Jesus says is that the person who thought he was okay was not saved. But that sinner coming to Christ saying, I'm unworthy, I have all these problems in my life, he went away justified. 
You know, salvation is not trying to be good on the outside. It's following Christ. It's confessing. It's returning to Jesus. It's having a heart for the Lord. But that always shows up in our words and it shows up in our actions. And so we need to be evaluating that. We need to encourage people to come to Christ. And as we consider people that are struggling, that are in difficult times, our hope is in Christ. It is not in ourselves. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, what a terrible tragedy for somebody to show up every week to be in a religious gathering and to think that they know you when it's just external religious behavior. God, I pray that you would touch our hearts for those who struggle, struggle with temptation, struggle with difficulty. Lord, encourage them. Grant them victory. Bring people alongside them to love them and to encourage them. And Lord, I pray that as we look around, as we look into our own heart, if we see people that are lost, help us to pray with a sense of urgency for them. Lord, help us to point them to you and to your word. And so we just ask that you would use this in our life in your name. Amen.